Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible author, researcher, and such sex educator, Nisha Heron-Fair. Hello, Nisha, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Thank you so much for having me. Nisha Heron-Fair is an author, researcher, trauma-informed sex educator, and founder of Soma Body Pleasure Work. Nisha is here to educate us all on fawning, when we sacrifice our authenticity to gain affection or avoid harm and its detriment to our relationships. Her book, Fawn, When No Looks Like Yes, is the first book to ever be written about fawning in the context of sex and consent. How are you today, Nisha? I'm well. I'm really excited to be here. I'm really stoked for this conversation. I'm super excited that you're here too. And I have so many questions. And before we get into today's topic on fawning, I'd love to just talk about our bodies and pleasure and even get into trauma a little bit. Because you start out your book by saying this, I don't believe pleasure is just our birthright. I believe it is our fundamental and unalterable nature and that being immersed in a pleasurable experience is to be immersed in the truth of who we really are. So I love that writing and I love to hear more about this, about pleasure helping us get in touch with who we truly are. And, you know, should I like go to the store, get a box of cupcakes right now to immerse myself in pleasure and get in touch with my truth? Or is the point to just be pleasurable all the time? So first I want to, I'm going to answer that, but I want to just, I want to make a tiny correction um, in the beginning solely because I think it supports this question. Most people make this mistake in calling me a sex educator, but I'm actually a pleasure educator. So I don't just look at pleasure as purely sexual. I'm looking at pleasure as something that we experience along a spectrum and a multidimensional scale. And so it helps, I think, to, to think about, you know, your question about, you know, are we just supposed to live in a pleasurable experience at all times? And, you know, I think when we look at pleasure as a, as a experience or, or reaction to what's happening in our nervous systems, that answer becomes a little bit more clear because our nervous systems are not meant to be always in parasympathetic ground. We are constantly modulating, moving between, you know, responsiveness and reaction. So, the idea that pleasure connects us to the truth of who we are is really an invitation to connect deeper to who we are when we're watching a sunset or the truth of who we are when we're cuddling with a partner after a disagreement or, you know, that feeling of dew on your feet in the morning when you're walking through the grass. So it's really the idea that connecting to these really earthly human pleasures are the essence of who we are and why we came here. And the modern world that we live in, complete with all of the trauma and oppression and and the turbulence of the last 
six years we've all been struggling with is what pulls us out of the truth of who we are. And, and it makes us forget that we're human and that we're here to have human experiences, intimate human experiences with one another. So I love that you said we want to remember who we are and why we came here. And I feel like that's just a lovely follow-up question. Who are we and why did we come here? Well, I mean, I think it's different for everybody, right? I think that that's kind of the journey is to remember who we are and why we came here. We all go through life. I think if you, I'd say there's probably maybe like 90, 95% of people on the planet who have experienced, maybe more actually, who have experienced some form of trauma. And I call it accident of birth trauma, that we are all in very uncomfortable bodies that are subjected to pain and discomfort and, you know, authoritative parents and, and what have you. And I think that our journey as people, as souls, is to remember who we are without all of that wounding, without all of our social conditioning, to really come back to what our bodies allow us to do, which is to connect with, with the fact that we are the earth. And that is why we came here, to be, to be here and have human experiences. So I love your correction that you are a pleasure educator. And I am curious how we do go about bringing more pleasure into our lives. Because I do think a lot of people experience guilt when they allow themselves to enjoy something. You know, even I have many like progressively minded, social justicely minded friends, and some of them do feel guilty, like allowing themselves some happiness when there's clearly so much suffering, oppression, war in the world. And that, I imagine, is just one of the obstacles that we have to being present. So as a pleasure educator, what are some things that you do teach around being able to increase our capacity for feeling pleasure? So I like to start with the fact that our pleasure potential isn't determined by how much pleasure we inundate ourselves with. It's determined by how much displeasure we allow into our lives, right? So if I'm running around having all the orgasms and just like all the Epsom salt baths every night, that will be really nice. But if I'm choosing unhealthy people and unhealthy practices, if I'm saying yes to things that are harmful to my relationship, then I'm kind of drilling holes in my own boat, right? In terms of that guilt around pleasure, the way I kind of like to reframe it is that pleasure is what gives us the fuel to fight for a more just society because pleasure is so incredibly regulating for our nervous systems. It's healing. It also heals our relationship to relationship because pleasure by its very nature is it's inviting us to come into relationship with something, whether it's another person, a furry friend. Again, a sunset, a beautiful <laughs> smell, some delicious food. It invites us out of ourselves. So when we're talking about you know, the experience on the body of trauma, trauma makes us smaller. It makes us contract inwards. It makes us withdraw from life. And any pleasurable experience makes us open up to life. It literally expands our bodies, our energies. And in in doing so, it makes us more whole and more open, more available to relationships with others, to, you know, being of service to our communities and to the world at large. So I see it as a necessary tool in 
all forms of social justice. So it's a kind of pleasure activism bent um, that I definitely take when it comes to, to pleasure education. I love that. Pleasure gives us the fuel to fight for a more just society. And I know it's probably obvious, but at the beginning, you mentioned, essentially, I hope this doesn't dispel any of our listeners' dreams, but orgasms and salt baths won't overcome unhealthy practices, people, and relationships. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's too bad. So we do have to work on those practices, people, and relationships. And I feel like that's just a lovely opening into our topic for today, which is on fawning. So first, we just got to figure out what this means. Um, So what is fawning? So fawning is one of our many stress responses. And the conversation or the sort of foray into fawning really only began in the year 2000. Up until then, fight flight was really the only, you know, game in town. And what a lot of people don't realize or know, because it's not part of how we talk about our stress responses, is that fight flight is a primarily biologically male response to stress. It was discovered by observing how Men respond to stress in the 20s and 30s after World War One, And now that doesn't mean that only men use fight and flight. All humans, all a lot of mammals, in fact, can fawn. It's a mammalian response that is particular to our mammalian nervous system. But because of uh, our hormonal complex and largely our social conditioning, fawning tends to be more biologically female. What's really interesting about fawn is that it's a uniquely social response and it's uniquely hierarchical. So I don't fawn in relation to a falling tree branch or an oncoming car when I'm crossing the street. I fawn with people. And so in thinking about fawn as a hierarchical stress response, we can see that, yes, like men can fawn in relation to other men and women can fawn in relation to other women, but because of the patriarchal structure that we're living in, and particularly in terms of uh, male-female pairings in intimate relationships, it tends to be a kind of response that we see women use in relation to men, particularly when they haven't done the work to unpack their uh, conditioning. Feel free to tease anything out and ask questions there because I, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm curious a little bit about what brought you to focused on fawning and why you felt compelled to write a book about it and talk about it. So once we know like what fawning is, like why is it so important? Yeah. Well, I'm a survivor um, of developmental trauma and I have a lot of I have a lot of sexual trauma in my history, but it never really put a dent in my experience as a sexual being until I ended an abusive relationship in 2014. And I started that relationship really open and like very in my body and very sexually literate. And I ended that relationship completely terrified of sex, unable to self-pleasure, afraid of men. I thought I was asexual, like it just complete 180 uh, in terms of who I was and how I experienced myself in relationships and intimacy. So that was kind of the beginning. And that was the 
impetus that started me on my journey of sexual reclamation. And through that process, I had an experience where I fawned with uh, in a casual sex scenario. And that particular experience ended up bringing up a huge swath of repressed moments and flashbacks, basically, of all the other times that I had fawned in my relationships and the ways that I didn't realize I was abandoning myself during sex and, and with my, my own pleasure. So at that time, I was already a, an embodiment coach, and that was really the, the push that moved me into doing pleasure coaching for other people. And I have been largely focusing on uh, female survivors of abuse, assault, and um, you know, non-consensual dating experiences. And my you know, desire or, or inspiration to write the book really came from them. Because I just started talking about my experience and all of a sudden these other people were like, oh my gosh, this has been happening to me too. And so I really, you know, it's here because, because of my clients and that's why I wrote it. I just wrote it for them and I'm hoping that other people are, are able to find use from it. Well, I very much appreciate you sharing your story. No one should have to go through what you've gone through, but you've turned it into really important work in the world and helping others survive and thrive after relationships. So I really appreciate it. And I'd love to get into what that fawning looks like. And then later we can kind of connect it to the trauma piece because you mentioned that fawning is one of our stress responses along with flight and fright and freeze. We now have a fourth F of fawn. And you mentioned it tends to be something that women do because it's social and we live in a patriarchal society. And so, you know, flight looks like running away. Fight looks like fighting. And what does fawning look like? Sure. So fawning ultimately looks like people-pleasing, placating, going along with something you don't want to do to try and gain favor or avoid harm. To look at the biological factors that are contributing to this, I think it's, it's, I mean, I think it's fascinating, but I think it's also very telling for people when they learn a little bit more that when the stress response is triggered, we lose connection to our language center. Awareness, self-awareness is inhibited. We also lose connection to the parts of our brain responsible for executive functioning, so decision-making, critical thinking. And any time, so fawn is a, is a hypoarousal response, and any time any hypoarousal response is triggered, we lose connection to the organ systems below our diaphragm, which include our guts, which is where all of our lovely gut instincts come from. Particularly for people who experience fawning in long-term relationships, it also cuts us off from our reproductive and genital systems. So this is why we will often tend to see a lot of avoidance or dissonance around sexuality after you know long-term fawning experiences. So I like to you know suggest or or point out that when we're experiencing fawning, this is why I think it's so important to really become more aware of how fawn is affecting our relationships because it's literally cutting us off from our own orgasms, cutting us off from our experience of pleasure. Yeah, one way I've heard the brain described as it's like a hand and your thumb's in the middle and the fingers are wrapped around it. And we have the limbic system and then the higher cortical functioning that you mentioned, the executive fun functioning, the language center. And when our stress response system gets activated, we flip our lid. <laughs> And it literally yes, shuts down those, that one too. Those yeah. higher capacities. 
<laughs> so, you know, we live in a very stressful society, right? People's stress response systems are activated almost like all the time. Chronically. Yeah. So it's not good. It's not good. And we don't want to get into it. And when you mention that it involves people pleasing and placating, you know, I'm almost imagining if I walked into the room and somebody was was fawning what that would look like. Because I'm almost imagining a heteronormative relationship, you know, a man and a woman. And the man's like really angry and, you know, clenches his hand into a fist. And then the female's like, can I... Can I uh, make you some dinner? Would that cheer you up? Like this sort of like, yes. what can I, you know, a sort of response, like what can I do to to get myself out of this situation? So what's the, you know, another example or a conversation or a situation that might happen where fawning is going to be the person's response? So we see it a lot in casual sex circumstances. And I want to really applaud your example, even though, you know, yes, it is heteronormative. <laughs> Because you've really um, kind of honed in on the fact that fawning is the result of an intimidation submission relationship. And that is exactly the essence of fawning, is that there is someone with more power and someone who is presumed to have less. So we see fawning in codependent relationships. In fact, I would argue that codependency is what we see on the outside and fawning is what's happening on the inside, on the body level. So in, for example, in, in casual sex situations where people don't know each other, they haven't filled out what I call the first fuck intake form, right? To know where all of the histories are and, and where there might be triggers, whether someone likes their hair pulled or not, right? Fawning can take place when someone crosses a line or consent isn't adequately discussed beforehand. And a person might kind of say, oh, it's fine, it's fine, and shrug it off or the other one that I, the other, I don't know, I guess, term that I use with a lot of clients is the get out of my apartment hand job, which is something that, you know, and a lot of women will have sex with, with a partner just to make it, just to get it over with, right? So these are kind of, you know, when you, I look at body attitudes too. So there can be a kind of airiness, uh, a sort of lifted, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to make this stop in some way. Quality to, uh, which maybe even to some people may, present like a kind of trying to orchestrate or meddle in a situation to to control it the other the other thing we we tend to see is um because the fawn can be mixed with all of our other stress responses so things like performing dropping into the the sex goddess porn star archetype as a way of again trying to make something happen faster or get something over with, or again, trying to, to be liked by someone. Yeah, I absolutely loved how you said that codependency is what we see on the outside, but fawning is what we see on the inside. Like it's an internal experience that's happening in a person's nervous system. And you write also in your book that fawning in a relationship is like rust to a car, which I love that metaphor. Um, and like rust in a car, it consumes and corrodes it. So what I'm currently hearing from you is, is it's like this almost temporary response to a challenging situation, but it can continue over time. And how does it end up consuming a relationship? So just like any of our stress responses, they can be in the moment reactions and they can become ways of inhabiting our bodies and surviving relationships. So we can become you know, chronically activated or stuck in a bit of sympathetic dominance. Uh, if we're 
navigating a really stressful time in life or stressful workplace uh, environment. And the same is true for fawn or freeze. So the issue with the rest, I want to kind of look at this in two sort of two pathways or two different camps because it happens very frequently in unhealed dynamics. And in that case, and I want to, I just want to back up because one of the issues in terms of looking at rust is the issue of responsibility and victimhood and whose fault it is and who's responsible for fixing something. Because the other part of fawning that often happens is that people take responsibility for fixing the problems in their relationship. So in an unhealed dynamic, there really has to be enough awareness and enough desire between both people to actually genuinely want to create a mutually beneficial relationship experience for both people. That's first and foremost, and that's really what's necessary to to heal that kind of fawning, aka the submission intimidation response. In a healed dynamic, so for example, let's say I'm a great example. Uh, I've had a lot of relationships where I have fawned in the past, and that can become the way I do relationships, whether my partner is secure or whether he's unhealed, right? So even coming into this relationship, I could have all of the markers, all of the proof that I need to know that it's going to be a healthy relationship, that I'm supported, that I'm respected, my no is going to be observed, all of these you know, wonderful green flags that we look for. But I might still rely on fawning because it's how my body, my nervous system, all my organs are used to doing relationship. So I'm going to come back between, I'm going to move back between both of these two examples while we tease this out, this issue of rest. In a healed dynamic, the responsibility is on the person who has a fawning history to be completely aware of their fawning history so that they are not creating rust in their relationship. To become a really good communicator, to know what their triggers are in bed, if there are certain positions or acts, um, sexual acts that trigger them to fawn. And it is the partner's responsibility to be a safe person to say no to and to hold space for them to explore and come into their authentic sexuality in their own time and way. And that is how we avoid rust in in a uh, in a healthy dynamic. In an unhealed dynamic, I really struggle with because because we end up seeing a lot of resentment and if couples aren't communicating well and they're isn't that level of foundation of safety, then the fawning is going to continue because fawning happens because we don't feel safe, right? Fawning is a response to a lack of safety and uh, an absence of an environment that accepts us in our authenticity. So I don't know if I answered your question. I feel like it's a really complex issue and I don't like to make absolutes because fawning is so new to how we understand relationships. So I think that the the goal in preventing rust ought to be self-education and really, really beautiful, compassionate communication with one another. Well, what I'm hearing from you is that hopefully you are in, or we all are in a loving and supportive partnership, right? I really believe in the power of love and that a loving container and a loving relationship is a wonderful way to grow and to heal our, our old wounds. So. Fawning doesn't necessarily have to be the rest. Like if you're in a healed dynamic, as you put it, the person 
who has a history of funding can use it to explore, communicate, gain awareness. And then the other partner can learn how to also manage it. So then they heal and grow together. But in an unhealed dynamic, it becomes much more challenging, right? And then it, and it will kind of grow if, if it's not you know, addressed, right? Because there's like, you can also do rest protection. <laughs> totally. So I love to connect it to um, trauma because something that I was hear- hearing from you earlier is almost that people who do have some history of trauma are more likely to fawn. Would, would you say that? And why is that? Well, particularly for those of us who are raised in turbulent homes, who experienced a lot of either physical, emotional, sexual, or substance abuse growing up. Fawning is how we prevented or tried to prevent harm. And it's also how we tried to establish connection. You know, when we're small, attachment is how we survive. And when we aren't getting the kind of secure, loving safety we need from our caregivers, when our caregivers aren't emotionally regulated people, we will try to manufacture that ourselves by being whatever we think the caregiver needs in order to receive that kind of validation and to feel safe. So we're literally trying to create safety out of, you know, a four alarm fire. So when, like I was kind of saying earlier, when all of our body systems have kind of created this embodied program of or definition even of what relationships are and how they work. And that program is that I have to fawn and work really hard to get attention, to be seen, to receive any form of connection. Then that's how I do all my relationships because it's my normal. So yeah, for there's a there's a little bit of a social media is really latching on to the fact that fawning is something that is learned and it's not. It is, it's a natural human mammalian response that we all know how to do. The learned part is that we, our bodies, learn that that's what relationships are, right? The response is biological, but the way we've interpreted relationships and how to survive them is through, you know, fawning responses, which again, any gender can do. Now, even if the trauma happened later in life. So if it was through an assault or um, a domestic uh, intimate partner violence situation, fawning is also something that a person might do. I have a lot of clients who have described situations where a partner became extremely violent and they immediately were like, oh, maybe if I come on to them, they'll stop you know, throwing things at me or they'll calm down that there's this feeling like they need to placate them either with sex or like the example that you'd gave with, well, I'll just make you your favorite dinner and everything's going to be okay. Right. So it's anytime we don't feel safe, it's one of the possible doors that we'll go through in order to protect ourselves from harm. But again, particularly in relationships, because fun is a hierarchical stress response, it is really common when we've experienced any form of, of trauma or abuse. Yeah. You mentioned the Nature, nurture, debate. And this to me is one of the most important findings of attachment theory is that our attachment styles that we develop as infants are evolutionary, evolutionary adaptations that we learn to survive, right? And a predisposition of fawning 
happens <laughs> during those really challenging upbringings. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about the path out, the path out of fawning and what it, what the light at the end of the tunnel looks like. You know, because I do think stress, like we're all going to have our stress response systems activated at different times in our life, right? Life can be stressful. So are we looking for no fawning at all, less fawning, noticing it, and then shifting to a more spacious awareness? Or what's the light at the end of the tunnel here? Well, as with anything, I think I'll recommend is that it's very individual, very personal. I know of people who've been in really exceptional situations where fawning was actually the very best option for them in their relationship. But, you know, people pleasing actually was a supportive course of action. So there's no judgment with any of these stress responses and how we use them. The invitation is really to see where am I being authentic with myself and how can I invite myself into greater authenticity? Because ultimately, authenticity allows us to expand into the fullest expression of who we are. So the light at the end of the tunnel, I think, is really to seek somatic comfort and to prioritize healthy attachment in our relationships, especially given the turmoil of our world and the fact that there really are no places of true refuge anymore. Our relationships have to be that place of true refuge. You know, our relationships need to be our safe harbor from the crazy shitstorm of life. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I think that that is, it's kind of like a, I don't know what you call it. Like the, I don't want to not want to use the term one, two punch, but it's the, the two birds, the two birds, one stone, because in, Focusing on healthy attachment, not only do we support ourselves to have more authentic, more loving, more supportive relationships, but it creates a relationship container where fawning can't exist. It literally like sucks the air out of it because fawning needs a lack of safety and healthy attachment in order to thrive. I really appreciate your emphasis on safety, security, because that to me is one of the most important foundations for a healthy and supportive partnership. I think many people think that they are in a relationship with somebody because, I don't know, they make them laugh or you have great sex or different things. <laughs> but to me, the most fundamental need is that it's a safe place where somebody loves you, even if you make a mistake. And as you mentioned, in our uncertain world, our relationships need to be a place of refuge and a place of safety and support. And you mentioned this idea of authenticity. And I am wondering what that like authentic caretaking looks like, because I do think it's natural and good that if our partner is upset in a certain way to do something that we think might make them feel better, right? Oh, I'm sorry, honey, you had a really rough day at work. I can take care of, you know, X, Y, Z. So shifting more towards that authentic, supportive, healthy relationships, um, how can we bring more of that into our lives? So back a little while ago, I talked about how our foray into a better understanding of fawning started in 2000, when the tendon befriend response was discovered, which was discovered by a female-led team. And that response was discovered to be incredibly nourishing for uh, the women who relied on nurturing, caretaking, you know, the, the amount of 
pleasure we get from having a really lovely conversation with someone at the end of a hard day is nourishing. It's supportive to us. So this natural propensity we have to want to look after one another is precisely what we should be trying to nurture with ourselves as a as a practice and also creating a a relationship container where that's uh, prioritized because it also supports healthy co-regulation as well. So in talking about the idea of authentic care, I think it's important to really look at where let me back up a second. So fawning is what happens when tendon befriend goes into overdrive without any opportunity to return to stasis, right? So it's this tending and befriending. There's nothing wrong with that. The same way that, you know, we want to have that injection of adrenaline to help us move across the busy street. So our stress responses, I want to try and move away from the idea that our stress responses are bad because ultimately we're here and because of our stress responses that are here, that we're here. But the idea of connecting with authentic care of one another, I think really has to be embodied has to be something where we support ourselves and each other to connect with a sense of somatic comfort together and on our own. Because when we're in that place of somatic comfort, we're more connected to what feels true. And I can say, okay, well, it feels really loving for me to go and support my partner in this way at this time versus, oh, wow, I kind of feel like I'm doing this because I want to take responsibility for their feelings instead of you know, giving them space to be responsible for their own pain or whatever they're going through. So I think ultimately it requires us to slow down and to take more responsibility for ourselves and really connect with what's authentic on a body level. I love that. And this is something I think we just need more of in the world is a capacity and a willingness and an openness to slow down. (laughs) (laughs) Our listeners can't tell, but Nisha's raising her wrist right now with her hands. (laughs) I appreciate that. I appreciate appreciate your support for my my comments. (laughs) Yeah, it's good. It's all good stuff. (laughs) So let's just, uh, as we're kind of winding down, tune into our, our authentic sexuality as we are talking about authentic care and embodied comfort. Because you did mention a lot of fawning does come up with casual sex. And some people some people don't even think casual sex is something happening at all, but we can have pleasurable sexual relationships with others as well. And I'm wondering what does that authentic sexuality look like and why it matters? Well, I hold my definition of authentic sexuality, both for myself and for my clients, really loosely because it's more of a process rather than a destination. It's a commitment to honor what feels true for me and my body for how I'm evolving, both as a human being and a sexual being. And it really matters because there is so much social pressure to perform our sexuality or our gender in a certain way, to be doing all of the acts that we see on pornography. And there's this, and men and women experience this equally. There's pressure coming from all sides and in all bodies. And when we're trying to live up to society's expectations or patriarchy's expectations and definitions of who we're supposed to be as sexual beings, we're we're literally abandoning ourselves and we're preventing ourselves from meeting who we are as authentic sexual beings. We're preventing ourselves from connecting 
and creating a space where our partners can figure out who they are as sexual beings, you know? So I really see it as, as a, a practice of, of rebellion against all of these voices and forces that are telling us that, you know, your body has to be this way and you have to, you know, your bits have to be this big or this small or what have you. And you have to be doing it this time, (laughs) this many times a week. Right, that it's really a, a form of activism. Authentic sexuality is a form of activism against a very oppressive. I mean, social media isn't helping either, but uh, against a very oppressive society in terms of trying to control who we are and how we express ourselves sexually. Which is really funny when you think about it, because we've had like hundreds of years of sexual repression, right? And we're kind of like opening Pandora's box and and going in the other direction, but that that driving need to try and be whatever we think is going to be accepted is part of what contributes to fawning too, right? Because I might abandon myself or repress my authenticity with someone because I think they're not going to like me if I don't have sex with them on the fourth date. Or that, you know, if I decide I, I want to try something that they're not into, right? So um, I think it's, it's, it's just important to be gentle with our hearts and our souls in, in the process of our sexual becoming. And I really feel like authentic sexuality is a really lovely way to do that. Absolutely. And you just did a really lovely loop back to something you said at the very beginning of our show. You said that pleasure gives us the fuel to fight for a more just society. And now what I'm hearing from you is authentic sexu- sexuality is its own form of activism. So I feel that's a lovely last segue into my final question that I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? This might sound trite, but that, um, that it starts with self, you know, I really don't subscribe to that idea of like, you can't love someone or you can't get love until you love yourself, because I think that's really conditional. But you know, I really do believe that when we become our own ideal partners, when we become our own dream boats and, and you know, perfect <laughs> lovers, then not only does that expand the amount of love that we're capable of receiving from someone else, but it grows the potential of what we can give to someone else. You know, it's sort of like this really beautiful, positive feedback loop. I love that. Be your own dreamboat. (laughs) (laughs) Sailing the seas of pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much. Pleasure educator Nisha Heron Fair. This has been a very pleasurable conversation. So thank you so much. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Uh, they can check out my website, nishafair.com. I'm on Instagram at nishafair. And I think I'm sure we'll have the link to my book uh, on the show notes as well. So they can find my work there too. Absolutely. Yes. Your new book is Fawn When No Looks Like Yes. And I wasn't sure. Is this already released? It is. Yeah. When did it come out? Uh, the ebook came out in October, but the paperback just came out about a week ago. So it's really fresh. Super fresh. Oh, wow. Must have been nice to feel it in your hands. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure exactly what that feels like. It's uh, like birthing a baby. <laughs> well, 
I appreciate you coming on and sharing us with this new, incredibly important topic. So for our listeners that want to learn more about this new and exciting dynamic that we are exploring that will benefit your relationships, be sure to check out Fawn when no looks like yes. And thank you so much, Nisha, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the valuable lessons from today, including that Sorry, but orgasms and salt baths won't overcome unhealthy practices, people, and relationships. That we all need love and connection so we can prioritize our healthy attachment in relationships, cultivating that sense of safety and security for your healed relationship to work through both partners wounding. And there's a wonderful, authentic, pleasurable light at the end of the tunnel. And this work is revolutionary. Pleasure gives us the fuel to fight for a more just society and authentic sexuality in itself as a form of activism. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Nisha. Thank you so much for having me. This was a joy. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 